Well, I want to uh, begin with a, with a statement that is going to kind of be a foundation for where we're going, and it's this, is that gifts can reveal a lot about the giver, that the gifts that, that people give can reveal a lot about who they are, what they're about, what their passions are, what their priorities are. And this Easter, as most Easters, uh, Noel gets some baskets ready for our kids for Easter morning, and uh, she knows exactly what they need to have in them. And uh, you've got an abundance of candies, all the ones that they like, and along with usually a thoughtful gift that is practical, yet something they wanted, and it's a nice little surprise, and it's all artfully put together. Well, this Easter, uh, we got up to Saturday, and she's like, hey, would you mind running out and, and getting a couple more things to round out the Easter baskets? And my guess is, in her mind, she was thinking, well, uh, I'm sure he's just going to get a few more of their favorite candies, but... I found this as an opportunity to put my spin on the Easter basket and, uh, and make a splash with my kids. So I wanted to get out of the box, and this is what we, we got for the Easter baskets, my part of my contribution. For Eli's basket, he got a, a jar of Vlasic dill pickles. Smack them, man. These things are tons of little, big old jar too. No artificial dyes. This is the real deal. And then uh, for Bradley's basket, another little unique gift is a can of wild-caught wild sardines. Now, I'm not going to ask you to embarrass yourself to see who likes sardines in this room, but Bradley and I enjoy partaking in them together. But this is the, this is the good stuff. This is wild-caught. This is the high-end version of sardines. And then for Alyssa's basket, she, she's going to be very embarrassed. It's good she just didn't, she's not in here right now. She got Taki-flavored meat sticks which not something I partake of. Uh, I'm a fan of meat sticks, but definitely nothing talkie flavored. Uh, and then for Carter's, we rounded it out with Little Caesars pepperoni pizza flavored sunflower seeds. So I know what you're probably thinking. If my statement is gifts can reveal a lot about the giver, then what does this reveal about Kevin other than he's an idiot? Uh, but here, here's the reality. This, this, I was batting 50% on Easter morning. For two of our kids, I'll let you just figure out which ones you think that is. Uh, this was a home run. This was met with smiles even more than the Cadbury cream egg, all right? Uh, for two of them, it was crash and burn. But the point is, is that, is that gifts really do reveal a lot about the giver. And, and the way Noel does the Easter baskets, the things she put in reveals that she's thoughtful, that she's caring, that she's artistic, and she's practical, yet she wants it to be personal for them. And for me, I will let you figure that one out. Uh, thoughtful, maybe in a different way, nonconformist, whatever. But the, the point is, is that gifts really do point us back to the giver in lots of ways. And this really meets us where we are in our series in Ecclesiastes. We're, we've been working through Ecclesiastes, working through the futility in this world, and we've transitioned to begin to talk about the hope that we have. And this really begins to capture and lead us to the hope that we have. So last week, we talked about, as we were going through Ecclesiastes, that we can face reality. And the one reason why we can face reality is because of the resurrection of Jesus, that he has secured a gain for us that, that really is, makes life worth it in the end. And, uh, and so we, we talked about that, that he's the rescuer that comes to rescue us from futility. Yet, when we hear that, and we hear that Jesus' resurrection secures for us a bright future, we can often mistake that, meaning that what life is about now then is about just meagerly trying to grit through the hard things until Jesus returns. And that is not the strategy that the teacher gives us in Ecclesiastes when he calls us to navigate the futility of this life. 
He gives us a surprisingly different strategy. And we're going to spend two weeks on it, uh, and we'll have particular one angle on it this week and another next week. But the big picture of what I want us to see this morning, what I pray that God would help us to see is this. It'll be on your screen and on your outline. Is that the enjoyment of God's small gifts in the moment are a pathway to see him in a broken and futile world. That every day we wake up and we live in a broken and futile world, and one pathway for us to see God is to enjoy the small gifts that he gives us in the moment. So let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, uh, you know each of our stories. You know the ways that we are experiencing the futility of this world. You know the harsh realities we're dealing with. And everyone in this room is touched by them in some way. And Father, we've been working through this book wanting to hear from you, to hear how do we navigate these things. And Father, so I pray that you would meet each one of us where we are this morning. And that you would do what I have no power to do, what none of us has the power of ourselves to do, which is to make your word come alive in our heart. We want to see you. We want to know you. Would you reveal yourself to us through your word? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We're going to spend primarily most of the time in the exhortation towards the end of this passage that we read this morning, but I want to give you a little context and set it up for you. So we're not going to go deep here because so much of what we've done over the past five weeks is uncover the futility of, of, of Ecclesiastes, but I want to give you the context of, that this teacher is showing us as life is difficult. When we understand the spin he puts on it in chapter 3, we'll begin to understand how powerful the wisdom is in verses 12 through 13. And so just to recap, and you'll see it on your screen here, verses 1 through 8 is essentially that we live in these seasons that are beyond our control. So this is traditionally thought about one of the most poetic and beautiful passages of the Bible, but when the teacher's writing it, it's, there is a, a poetry to it that does capture maybe some beauty, but he's really saying this life is difficult. We're in all these seasons that come upon us, and some are sweet, a lot are hard, and we have little to no control over any of them. And so he's saying we, we've captured in this bouncing around. Humanity throughout human history has these seasons that they're captured in, that are bouncing around in. And it's so much so, he, he, he has to bring in hope in verse 11. And he basically says here, you know, God's going to make everything beautiful in his time. But notice the language here that I have bold on the screen. And he says, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So it's in sense there, you've got these hard, hard and difficult seasons that come and go, and he's leaning on the truth that God is going to make it beautiful in his time. But notice what he says after it. But it's still frustrating because we can't figure out why. All these seasons that humanity goes through, and if you've been in suffering in your life, this question has plagued you too. Why now? Why me? He's saying we can't figure it out. So we've got these difficult seasons. We can't figure them out. In verse 4, 14, he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. We can't change these seasons either. And this has left us in a place that he says in verse 9 where we can't go after the pursuits in this life. And really, one reason we can't get gain from the pursuits in this life, worthwhile, lasting gain, is because of these seasons that are inescapable. We have no idea what they're going to take from us at any given moment. And so he's saying this is the difficult place we find ourselves. We face hard things. We don't know why, and we can't change it. So what are we to do? Well, the teacher does give us some very surprising counsel on how to navigate the futility we live in. And in one sense, I think the way we expect him to respond is just to just grit and bear it and press through. But that's not what he says. He tells us to enjoy God's gifts in the moment. 
So let's focus in here on verses 12 and 13. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So again, this is right after what he's capturing here about these seasons, these difficult seasons. And his counsel to us in this difficulty is to be joyful and do good, to eat, drink, take pleasure in your toil. So the, the emphasis on navigating these times is doing good and enjoying what we have in the moment. And note there he says this is God's gift to man. And this isn't a unique point in Ecclesiastes. He repeats this strategy over and over again. Eight key sections are in Ecclesiastes on enjoying God's gifts. And so um, I want to I survey a couple of them just to help us see that this isn't isolated and there's some weight to what he's saying. And these are places that you would not expect him to say, go enjoy what God's given you. And so we're going to see in uh, chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. And so he says, behold, what have I seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun with the few days of his life that God has given him. This is his lot. And so, okay, great. But the context of this is not what you expect for him to come to that conclusion. The teacher just finished walking through how corruption is often systematically paralyzing to humanity. That was verses 8 and 11 leading up to this. And he speaks of his own wealth, how wealth fails as a pursuit. That was verse 10 and 12 through 15. And he concludes by saying basically death in verse 15 is going to take everything that we have anyways. And so what's his encouragement to you amidst that difficulty? This is what I've seen to be good. Eat, drink, find enjoyment. Again, the ability to enjoy and accept your lot is a gift, something given to us by God here. And then we see in Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10, just a summary of some of the statements in there. This isn't in order. He says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you. So again, context here, the teacher just finished finishing talking about in verses 3 and 10, how death is haunting all of us. And that time and chance in verses 11 through 12, meaning come to all of us, meaning there's so much in our life that we have so little control over. And what is it, how are we supposed to navigate this? He says, since you're going to lose everything, go eat with gladness. Drink wine with a merry heart. Then he adds to it, enjoy life with your wife. It's, it's essentially what he's saying. So you can't control reality, so receive what you have as a gift of God and enjoy every moment of it. That's the teacher's wisdom for us in amidst difficulty. And as I'm thinking about that, and as I'm wrestling through these texts this week, and doesn't this sound kind of like an ancient version of YOLO, like you only live once, so just seize it up, live it up, party it up, that's all you got, go for it. Doesn't it kind of feel like that a little bit? I mean, is this just glossed over in the Bible? Is this really biblical? And I think there's some power here. And I think what separates this from that kind of modern philosophy is that he's telling us what to enjoy, and he's telling us to enjoy them and relate to them, and this is key, as gifts from God. That's the key. God is a generous giver of gifts, and as image bearers, he wants you to do what he does, which is enjoy them. 
And so this idea of YOLO is really just centered on self. It's on consumption. But the teacher's telling us here to savor these gifts that come from God. And so this strategy is radically God-centered. And you'll, I'm going to give you a long quote on the screen here in a minute. But what's even more important in verse 14, at the end of that statement of enjoying everything, he's saying God does all this so that you would be in awe of him. He is the focus of it all. And Ian Proven in his commentary, this is a little bit of extended quotes, I've got it up on the screen, but he powerfully captures and summarizes kind of the, the, the God-centeredness of what he's saying here. He says, what is noticeable about what the teacher says, of course, and what marks out his philosophy from modern secular views of the world, he doesn't want to say yellow there, but that's what he's talking about, with which it shares superficial similarities, so on the surface it seems similar, is that it's centered on God. The teacher's carpe diem is an expression of faith, not of self-fulfillment. It's not the greedy consumption of experiences and pleasures before oblivion consumes us. It is rather the patient and joyful embrace of daily life as it comes to us as a gift of God. That it involves ethics is also patently clear from, from 3.12. It is not a life centered on self, but a life that is turned outward toward the neighbor, asking what is good. We are indeed to seize the day, but we are to remember its divinely created nature as we do so. The biblical carpe diem that is not a self-centered response to the uncertainty surrounding life after death, but a worshipful response to the God of creation, who is also the God of new creation and resurrection. And so it really is important to focus on that phrase, gift of God. That's what separates all of what he's talking about there. In the midst of the the harshness of life, we're called to enjoy God's gifts. And so why would he tell us to do that? How does that fit in this context of Ecclesiastes? And it, and it, it comes down to this. We're called to enjoy God's gifts in the moment because those gifts are a pathway to him. So I don't think most of us have a problem with enjoying things in our life. I think there are a lot of things we enjoy, but I don't know that we always go about them enjoying a way the teacher tells us to here. And that's in enjoying them as a gift of God. Because although that phrase is short and we can quickly run over it and we can quickly say it, there's a certain framework that comes from this idea that they're gifts from God. And I want us to unpack that framework a bit. Because that framework helps us to see that they're pathways to hope in a broken world. And I want to begin looking at James 1.17 here that corresponds with, with what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so God is the giver of these gifts. And you get this sense of the, as the Father of lights. And C.S. Lewis in his book, Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer, kind of begins to illustrate this in a letter talking about how these gifts are a pathway. And he uses this image of a sunbeam, this concept of a sunbeam, that we feel the sunbeam and we follow it up to see the source, the sun itself that the sunbeam is part of sun, the sun's work. And that's what we need to do with God's gifts. And this is his quote here. He says, Gratitude exclaims, How good of God to give me this. Adoration says, What must be the quality of that being who's far off and momentary? I don't even want to say this word. I had to look it up. So some of you are a lot smarter than me, but it's corsications, I think is what it says. But this actually glitters and sparkles. So how, how far off and momentary glitters and sparkles are like this? One mind's, one's mind runs back up to the sunbeam, from the sunbeam to the sun. And so he's getting this picture here that these, these gifts, along with what James is saying, are a pathway 
to seeing who God is. And so I want to unpack that framework there. We, can let, we can't let this simplicity of this phrase, gift from God, uh, be a stumbling block to not see the weight of what he's saying here, of enjoying these as gifts of God. And the first thing we see, and it's on the screen already under that quote, is that the concept of a gift from God recognizes our unworthiness and his generosity. So the idea of just being a gift of God means that we're receiving something we didn't earn. That's the whole idea of a gift. He's not saying the wage from God. It's the gift from God. We give gifts at Christmas to people we love, not because they did their chores that year, but because we cherish them and love them and we want to shower them with good gifts. This is the very thing we're seeing here. And I think this presses in on a big challenge we have in enjoying the things around us is that we bring a mindset of deserving mentality, of entitled, that we're entitled to joy in our daily lives. But that mindset of entitlement is contrary not just to the gospel, but to the teacher's wisdom here that we receive these as gifts. And when we are entitled to them, it short circuits this pathway that we can't see God through them. And so when the teacher calls us to enjoy them as a gift, it means that we're grateful to God for his generosity that we didn't deserve. And so our eyes can look, can lift up from these difficult, harsh realities around us and see God in, in a gratitude for just this moment that he's given us to enjoy a gift. But another aspect of this framework, and you'll see on your screen here, is the concept of a gift from God gives us a taste of the giver. So also in that letter, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote that, these, that his aim was for all these everyday pleasures to be a channel of adoration. Isn't that interesting? That when you experience pleasure in the moment, or as the Ecclesiastes would say, enjoy what's in front of you in the moment, that these would be a channel or a pathway back to adoration, to see something about God. This is chasing the gift back to the giver to be in awe of him. This is what healthy enjoyment of gifts look like. And uh, I think the best way to explain kind of how this functions is just to give you a couple examples. So I want to take two gifts that I think are easily over, overlooked in life. And the first one is the gift of taste. And so, you know, the gift of taste can, be, can range from something small like a cup of coffee or OJ in the morning to something really good like a steak dinner. Now, if you're not a steak fan, you can just supersede tofu over that if you prefer. Uh, but something along those lines. But the point is this, is that taste is something, is a gift you take for granted until you don't have it. So some of you got COVID in that first round, and one of the side effects was that you lost taste. And just the threat of that in that first round of COVID, and I never, I never, I didn't get COVID in that first round. I didn't lose my taste, but I was thanking God every day for my taste buds because the thought of having no taste was haunting to me, right? And let me give you a little couple of facts of the science of taste because it tells us something about this powerful gift. So there is a complex system in your mouth devoted to tasting good things. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. So adults have between 2,000 and 4,000 taste buds in total. So sorry for you folks on the lower end of that. Uh, but each of these taste buds has between 10 and 50 sensory cells, and these cells renew every single week so that you can keep your taste, tasting up to par. And so think about that. God has given you and I the gift of up to 200,000 cells on your tongue renewing every week that are devoted to one thing and one thing only, tasting. And then 
the amount of flavors that you can taste is pretty astounding. So they've got some scientific range that ranges the different categories of taste and the different intensities of taste and the different categories and different intensities. You do the math, there are at least 100,000 different tastes that you can have, right? And then if you include texture, kind of the touch and texture, and you include temperature in that, and you can t include smell in that, which is all involved in taste, I mean, the, it's just countless and countless ways that you can taste all the gifts God's given us. And so what that communicates about the giver is that in God's design, eating and drinking are not merely maintenance tasks for the human machine to function. Now that might counter some of your parenting, right? When your kids don't want to eat or something, you just got to eat it because it's good for you. Well, God's given you a lot of taste buds because he wants it to be something more than just good for you, right? Eating and drinking are gifts from God to enjoy his creation and be in awe of him. And so this gift of taste, it's a pathway to God. What does it tell us about him? It tells us that he cares about our momentary joy. I mean, just think, 200,000 cells devoted to just a joy that's just this, it, that's all. God designed that. What's that tell us about him? He cares about our momentary joy. That he's creative and detailed. I mean, there's so many intricacies in taste. That he's generous. There's so many things that we can taste. And get this, that he is good to all of humanity. It's not just his followers that got these taste buds. It's the rebels as well. And we have rebel hearts as well. And so you see this with the gift of sight. So we've got uh, one of the center students, international students, is kind of part of center's program. He comes and hangs out with us in our family, and uh, he's a soccer fan, so I took him out to go train with our oldest, my, my oldest plays, it, I coach his team, and we went out to do a training. And on the drive back, the sun was setting, and uh, he's from Nigeria, and he noticed just how one of the things, he has lots of comments about central Kentucky, but one of the positive comments is just how beautiful the sunsets are of the farmland. And this picture up here, next one up, is, uh, is actually the Nash's farm. Uh, Alyssa and I, they were fishing one afternoon when she was younger, and this is, this is the picture of the sunset over their farm, and they are beautiful. I mean, I, I uh, coming from Georgia, I didn't have any good thoughts of what Kentucky would be like. And just because Georgia is just a little bit arrogant for in the South. And then I realized Kentucky's not even part of the South from my perspective. But I was amazed at the beauty of the land, these rolling hills and the sunsets. And the science of sight tells us something also about this powerful gift. And in God's design of the eye, he has made it where we can distinguish up to 10 million different colors. And then God seems to make things very colorful in our world. There are at least 300,000 known species of flowering plants. Isn't that interesting? Now, obviously those flowers have a functional role in God's kingdom, but why make them beautiful? And why make them so many different colors? And why make the eye be able to perceive 10 million different shades of color? This gift of sight is a, is a pathway to God, right? What does this tell us about him? That he's creative, he's detailed, he's a powerful artist, he delights in seeing and savoring beauty, and he is generous, and he overwhelms us with beauty all around us. And so this concept of a gift of God helps us to, to be gracious, with gratitude because we see we're undeserving. It also points us back to him. But then the framework of this gift in the big span, and the teacher wouldn't have seen this because this is coming before Christ, but in the big span of the Bible, all his gifts point us to the greatest of his gifts, Jesus. 
And so all these little tastes and sights can lead us, if we see them as a pathway, to the reality that this giver has given us the greatest gift, the gift of Christ. The gift of Christ, if, if the gift of taste shows us something, the gift of ta- Christ shows us something even more about his character. And so the phrase I want you to maybe think about is how much more, how much more, that that would be something that would ring in our mind. And this is, this is what, uh, let me illustrate this. So if his generosity is something that we see in the small gift of tasting a good steak, how much more in the giving of his son to bring us back to him. It's the pathway that takes us there. If his kindness is something we see in the small gift that we don't deserve, how much more in the forgiveness of our sin despite being rebels. If his care is something we see in the small gift of a sunset in a difficult moment in life, and it allows us just a little taste of respite of the hard thing, how much more in the walking with us as our good shepherd, that he'll never leave us. If his joy is something that we see in the small gift of laughter with a friend, how much more in the unending joy we will have in his presence for all eternity. This framework of receiving and enjoying a gift of God is powerful. In that framework, we recognize that we're undeserving. We recognize that this this small gift in the moment is a small taste that is enjoyable to us, but also is a taste of who he is. And it's a pathway that can ultimately take us to the greatest of his gifts, Jesus. And so this teacher's strategy to navigate life in a broken and futile, futile world, one of the aspects of this is healthy enjoyments of God's gifts. That we, when we enjoy them in the moment, they're a pathway to point us to him, which is even a greater breath of fresh air in the hard things in life. So where do we go from here? I want to give you two points of application as you walk away, and uh, they're both on your outline. be on the screen too. The first one is this, is that in light of what we've just seen here from the teacher in Ecclesiastes, beware of a view of God in Christianity where the emphasis is on no and avoidance. Now, I think it could be common to have this, what we think is a seemingly spiritual thought, that the Christian life is only about austerity and sacrifice, and that God is mainly a God who is telling us to avoid all the hard and difficult things in the world, and avoid all the temptations in the world. And when you read the Bible and you think about God's design of the world, you wrestle with what he's saying here, and you look in James. This isn't the God of creation. A view of God like that isn't the God of creation in the garden where there was one tree that was off limits and thousands that were a yes. Just think about that. This isn't the God of the cross where he gave generously and sacrificially to allow us full access to his presence. Sure, there are things in this life that we are called to say no to and avoid, but that's just not the emphasis. A God of no and avoidance would have not given us 200,000 cells in our tongue to taste. He just wouldn't. That's just not in his design. That's not what you see in all of creation. It's not the fill of the whole Bible. So beware of a view of God where the emphasis is on no and avoidance. And then secondly, is to trace these gifts. Instead of having that view of God, trace these gifts of God in your present moment back to what they say about who he is and what he's given you in the gospel. So every day we wake up, we will taste some of the harsh realities that the Ecclesi- teacher in Ecclesiastes describes. It's, in a, an, an, it's inevitable. Every one of us will taste these harsh realities to increasing measure as we go through life. 
but also every day. God gives us small gifts in the moment. And those, those small gifts are meant to be a counter to the harsh realities, to give us a taste of who He is, and to be a pathway to point us to hope in Him. And so really, the call here is to slow down and enjoy these small gifts God gives us. Each taste can take us back to His character. Each taste can take us back to the cross. Each taste can take us ahead to the moment when the taste of who He is will be fully and forever in His presence. But we've got to slow down and enjoy this pathway that He's given us. That's part of what He comes with this wisdom in Ecclesiastes. And so my practical encouragement to you as you face a harsh reality is to look around in the midst of that harsh reality and in that moment to find a small gift from God. And not only does that small gift from God give you a little taste of joy that really is like a, 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 a glass of water on a hot day that quenches your thirst for the moment in a sense that it, it cuts the harshness for the moment. But enjoying that gift is not just for that, but it's to point you back to the giver who will sustain you in that harsh reality till he returns. And it will point you to the God who can quench your thirst. It will point you to the God who will usher in a kingdom with no more harsh realities. And it will point you to the God who secured all of this for you and I through the death and resurrection of His Son. Grace Church, God calls us to enjoy the small gifts in these moments to point us back to Him. Let's pray. Father, this is a welcomed breath of fresh air as we have walked under the heavy words of the teacher in Ecclesiastes, as we face the harsh realities, as we've let them come down upon us, Father. And all the while, who could think up a God like this? If we were all to try to conjure up what God would be like, we couldn't conjure up a God this rich and generous. We couldn't conjure up a God who would give us 200,000 cells on our tongue to taste amazing things, an eyeball that can grasp 10 million different colors. And we could never fathom a God who would come after rebels and give the ultimate generous sacrifice of His one and only Son that you could bring us back into your presence. We couldn't fathom a God who would want us to enjoy the moment when we're so undeserving and yet at the same time, we'd secure a way that we could enjoy His presence fully and forever for all eternity. We just can't think up such a God. But that's who you are. And so we're just in awe of you. We thank you. Would you meet us? God, if, if, there, if we're in this room and we've squandered your gifts, if we've tasted them and we've never given you the glory for them, if there are those that are gathered in this room that don't know you as this kind of giver, God, I pray that their eyes would be open to see your beauty in the greatest gift on the cross, and they would turn to you. And for those who are just struggling in the harsh realities, God, there are in this room, the aging process, the betrayal, the hurt, the pain, the disease, it is here. The stories are heartbreaking. Father, would you let just the, even the taste of a good meal, the sight of a flowering tree, the breath of fresh air, would, would you let that enjoyment of that gift Take them to you. And Father, would you meet us? We need you. We'll be able to respond and worship to you now. Amen.